Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and get started tonight. Uh, as you can tell, it's casual hour. <laughs> Sitting here in my comfy chair and just enjoying it. So praise the Lord for that. Um, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer, and we'll go ahead and get started tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time that you've given to us. I thank you again, Lord, for an opportunity to just study your word. I pray that as you guide and direct us this evening through your, with your Holy Spirit through your word, that uh, we would receive the understanding and that we would receive the principles and the truths that are contained therein. That, Lord, we would be very receptive to your word, that we would not uh, um, bulk at it, that we would not uh, shun it or push it away, but, Lord, that we would gladly receive it with joy and uh, with uh, um, a heart, Lord, that is willing to please you and honor you. And, Lord, I just pray that tonight we would do that, that we'd please and honor you through all that we do and uh, through how we act, behave, and think, that, Lord, you would get the glory, honor, and praise. Thank you again for all that you've done for us, above all the salvation that we have through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you've freely given to us. And, Lord, again, I thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have, that uh, we can have that relationship and fellowship with you. These things I pray in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So if you remember many, many, many moons ago on Sunday evening, we started a study in First John. Anybody remember that? <laughs> so we're going to pick up where we left off and we barely got out of verse one. So praise the Lord. It's kind of still like a new study. So it's not like Colossians where I got to go back and, okay, figure out where I'm going to pick up again. Um, but uh, we've got here in First in John, and that's why I'd like you to turn in your Bibles tonight, in the book of First John. And we're going to read through the first four verses, again, establishing that context, establishing what we're talking about. We'll talk a little bit about what we mentioned beforehand, just to kind of, again, refresh our memory and bring back to uh, mind what we've already learned. But in 1 John chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So here we are just kind of establishing in the first part, and we talked about John, we talked about his uh, importance, who he is, uh, the books that he's written. He's written five out of the, uh, the, the New Testament. And obviously we've got the Gospel of John. There's a lot of parallels that we looked at with the Gospel of John, with the book of Revelation, with what we have here in the, the, this, this first letter that he's writing. Uh, in first John, we've seen that he's, you know, obviously wrote second and third John again to specific individuals to encourage and to edify, showing and demonstrating. And we find there's a lot of words that John uses over and over again. Now, one of them is love. And here he is being a son of thunder. You wouldn't think that that would be one of the first things that he talks about. 
But it is because the Lord worked on John. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He obviously needed a little bit more than everyone else. (laughs) There was something in John's life that caused that. And he, you know, John had a, had a, a, a desire for the Lord. It's very evident. We see that he was the only one that was there at the cross. All the rest were gone. John had fled, but had come back. We see him there at the cross, and we've talked about that. We see another word that shows up throughout uh, what John writes and what the Holy Spirit uses him to write, and he talks about truth. You know, again, John 17, uh, 17, one of the most powerful uh, verses in uh, Scripture, talking about the Word of God, and in, where Christ says, thy word is truth. So we establish it. We see that, you know, with the, the, the uh, discussion with Pilate that Jesus had, and what does Pilate respond with in the book of John? What is truth? So we see that we talk about love, we talk about truth, and these are things that we find in this specific uh, uh, letter, we see that he talks a lot about writing the word of God, things being written. And again, we find that in a parallel over there with John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we find that very clearly that there is a connection there, and we talked about that with what we see in verse 1 here. But I want to focus uh, tonight a little bit on verse 2 and about what is manifested. And that word manifest has, you know... We, we don't really use that word a lot. We generally will say the word, well, I want to show you something. Or, I, I, you know, or this is something that I've made. But that word manifest, having its definition in something that is created to show and to demonstrate, is an important principle for us to understand when it comes to Jesus Christ. And we find in verse 2, it says, for the life was manifest. Well, what is the life that he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. We talked about this when we were talking about the life. The life that is there that he's mentioning in that in verse 1 is we're talking about, as we see there, the word of life, capital W. Again, we're looking at him, Jesus Christ, the word that was mentioned over in John chapter 1 and in the book of Revelation. So we find very clearly this word of life and this life that is the light of men, as he says over in John chapter 1, is Jesus Christ. And he says that life was manifested. Well, how was that life manifested? In the form of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus specifically said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we've talked about life. What is life lived like? What do people live for? What do people desire to have in their lives? And what we find is, is we find that people will live for just about anything but Jesus. They'll live for just about anything but Jesus. They'll live for their spouse. They'll live for their family. They'll live for their friends. They'll live for a career. They'll live for whatever else it is that you put there. But again, it's a life that is lived in idolatry because Jesus Christ is supposed to be the preeminent one, as we've talked about with the book of uh, Colossians. 
But what we find here is we find that God manifested this life. He demonstrated, he showed it to them. We get to see it through the scriptures today. We get to see what that life is like. But also we get to experience it. We get to experience it. The Christian life is a different Christian, is a different life. You live a life for yourself or you live a life uh, that is outside of uh, God and you're going to experience some things. They may not be pleasant things. They may be pleasurable for a season, as the scripture says. But again, it's there and then it goes. But a life that is lived for Jesus Christ is very different. We can just see the hand of God. Many times in my life, I've seen God specifically working. As I've said, I do not believe in that word coincidence any longer. That's to, to me, it's just like a made-up word like karma. I was telling Aaron about that over lunch. It's just kind of a, a just it really, that doesn't have any meaning to me at all. Because I see God working in the lives of men and women. Working in the lives of believers answering prayer, setting things in our path, guiding us, directing us. And we get to see that manifest in a very different way than the disciples saw. They saw Jesus Christ physically. Now, again, he's establishing the authority from where he's writing, and he's saying, look, I actually saw Jesus. I touched him. We don't get to do that today. And people may say, well, you know, that's kind of not fair. Well, hmm. you got to remember, they didn't even have the Bible back then. They had a bunch of scrolls that you had to pack around. Parchment papers. It wasn't in a nice, easy, compact form that had, you know, somewhat ivory pages so it was easy to read. You know, you couldn't get it in giant-sized font if you were going blind. If you were going blind, you just didn't read it. You know what you had to do? You had to listen to somebody else read it. So you had to hang around synagogues. You had to hang around the temple. But what we find here is we find that he's saying this life that was manifested, and he says, and we have seen it, and bear witness. And he's making it very clear that he has an authority from which to speak from. And it is what God has revealed. Uh, let's go over to a couple of uh, passages of Scripture. Let's go over to uh, specifically um, Romans uh, chapter 8. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> and in Romans chapter 8, we're going to take a look at a couple of verses. And let's take a look at verse uh, 3. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. It says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So what we find here is we find that Paul is writing to the Romans, saying, look, God was manifested in the flesh, in the form of Jesus Christ. He came specifically 
to do something. And what does it say there? Condemned sin in the flesh. This is one of the biggest doctrinal principles that I think, you know, many people get messed up. Because they try to, 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 if you will, put Jesus in, 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 in a box and there has been nobody like Jesus. Okay. He was equally God at the same time he was equally man. And as the Bible says, you know, he endured temptation yet without sin. The Bible says that all have sinned, but not Jesus Christ. And he demonstrates to us, and he gives us examples, and he gives us, uh, 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 if you will, the outline of how to live the life. And the life that Jesus Christ lived specifically was for the will of the Father. And what we find here is this life that he's talking about is not something that is a fleshly life. While John was able to see Jesus in the flesh, the life that he's talking about, that eternal life, was found in a spiritual sense. Meaning that it involved God who is a spirit. John chapter 3. John chapter 4. All of those things that we see about describing who God is. He is a spirit and he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Well, we find again that John is, is demonstrating that there is a right way to think about God. There's a right way to think about Jesus Christ. And sometimes people will think, well, he was just a man. Well, he was just a great teacher. Oh, well, you know, uh, he, he was like one of the prophets. Or they'll say, well, he was kind of a special kind of man. But there, there wasn't, there wasn't any like him before. So he's kind of like a Superman. Jesus Christ isn't Superman. He's not. Uh, Superman doesn't even hold a candle to Jesus Christ. You know, I, and look, I grew up with all the comics. I grew up with, uh, you know, seeing Superman and stuff like that. And I'll tell you this, you know, they, they glorify him and they almost deify him to the point of where it, it, it's it's like he's worshipped because nothing can defeat Superman except for, well, kryptonite. You know, like a whatever. You know, they they, they got to have some fatal flaw, right? And many times that's what they do with Jesus Christ, isn't it? Well, he wasn't perfectly sinless. Yeah, he was, because if he sinned once, then, man, we're all, we're all doomed. We're all done for. What does it say here? It says, very specifically, what the law could not do. The law couldn't save us. Keeping of the law is not going to save you. You can keep the law all day long. It's not going to do anything. You can go outside and, and, and sacrifice turtle doves and bullocks and lambs and goats and everything else under the sun, but it's not going to do anything for your salvation. God had to come and make a sacrifice in the flesh. 
someone dying for mankind. Another man dying for all. And we find this here where he says it was weak. The law was weak through the flesh. But what happens here, we find that God, when he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. We find very specifically that God is doing this to show us something. To manifest it. Let's take a look at another passage. Uh, let's go over to, um, oh, let's go ahead and go over to, lost my place there. Uh, let's go over to, to, to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. Let's start there, John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, it says in verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Look at this parenthetical that John says, and we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And this is one of the most important principles that we find is that the word of God, which is God, came here in the flesh. And people have argued and said, well, Jesus really wasn't God. Like, he had to be. He had to be. Otherwise, we look at this passage and we find that there would be a problem. There would be a doctrinal issue. And this is one of the principles that we find about the book of 1 John, about the book of John itself, the uh, the Gospel of John, and the book of Revelation, is you know what you're going to find? You're going to find a lot of doctrine. You're going to find a lot of heavy stuff. You're going to have a lot of stuff that you're going to look at and it's going to, you're going to be like, mm, I don't know what that is. You're going to find some things that, that God revealed to John that he has written for, to us for a reason. God chose to, per, to, to preserve that letter that John wrote as the word of God inspired and preserved for us and put it in the Bible for us to read. And there's a reason why, and we read it in the verse, and we'll get to it in just a minute. But what we find here is we find that God is, you know, the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. He was physically here on earth. Uh, a while ago, a guy wrote a book that was talking about uh, proving from an evidentiary uh, perspective that Jesus Christ was a real person here on earth. Goes through all the Roman documents, goes through all of these things and, and shows that Jesus Christ really truly was here. Is God asking you to believe that Jesus Christ was actually a physical person here on earth? I mean... Do we believe that Caesar Augustus was actually a person? How about Napoleon? Nero? Adolf Hitler? Do we believe that, you know, 
The first President Bush who actually was the person that existed. They've all passed away. They're all part of history. God's not asking us to believe history. He's asking us to believe his word. And there's a big difference between the two. Right now, we live in a day and age where history, the history books are changing. I understand people find things and they bring things out. And I, I look, I get that. I understand those things. But, but God's word never changes. And what we find here is we find that what we see is that it's the word of God that he wants us to believe. It's the word that he specifically uses here. It's the word word that he uses in this passage that he wants us to know and to believe about Jesus Christ. That it was manifested in the flesh. He was here on earth, but he's not asking us to believe a man. He's asking us to believe God at his word. There's the big difference. How many of us have ever watched an advertisement or heard somebody uh, trying to sell something and you just look at that and go, yeah, right. You're like, "Mm mm-hmm, sure. And you you do that now with the the pharmaceutical commercials. As you sit there and, you know, you you see these people, you know, they're happily playing volleyball or or a round of golf or going swimming or paragliding or, you know, whatever it is that they're doing out there. And they, they just look so happy after taking these medications. As they're talking about, you know, be careful, these side effects may include death, dismemberment, uh, losing body parts, you know, for whatever it may be. And I exaggerate, but, you know, listen to some of those. Read the package insert. And then you're like, ah. I remember you when I was in pharmacy, uh, as a pharmacy tech, and, and we had some new medications come out. And I remember the, the pharmacist, he's reading the side effects, and he's like, oh. And he has me read it, and I'm like, ah. Oh. Like, we're, you know, we're never taking that drug. I don't care how bad it gets. Because, you know, there's just, there's, there's life, and then there's quality of life. And, and, you know, you sit there and go, can I live with this condition? Or do I want to live this way to get rid of something? But regardless, you look at it and you go, really, am I going to believe that? You know, used car salesman. Oh, yeah, those were all freeway miles. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure they were. That little old granny just, you know, traded it in. Yeah, it's a 1979, and it's only got a 1,000 miles. Yeah, probably the odometer's rolled a couple of times. We, we, You know, and I'm not knocking used car salesmen. I'm just saying, you know, that's kind of the mentality that we have, right? God's not asking us to believe the word of a man. He's asking us to believe his word. His word. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Believing. Believing on the word of God. That's what that verse is talking about. 
But we find in another passage of scripture, go over to, um, first Timothy. First Timothy. And in first Timothy chapter three and verse 16, <clears throat> It says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And he says, this is something that is a mystery. Mysteries, mysteries intrigue mankind. They always do. How many remember Robert Stack and unsolved mysteries? Oh man, we had, yeah, yeah, I know. I just really, really, really dated myself with that one. But, you know, everybody's sitting there and they'd watch those unsolved mysteries about what is this and what is that. And, you know, sometimes they would talk about this and they had, uh, um, you know, uh, D.B. Cooper. And I understand that's not his real name and all that jazz. And they'd have that unsolved mystery of where he is, where is he and where is the cash? And, you know, people have torn up the whole entire Vancouver, southwest Washington area looking for for that. And I'm like, you're not going to spend the cash because it was all accounted for. And if one of those $20 bills ever showed up, you'd be arrested in five minutes. But, you know, here here he is, you know, talking about mysteries and mysteries intrigue people. Why would God create a mystery? What do you do when you're when you have a mystery? You try to solve it. You invest time. You invest effort. You know, you got a, you got a problem that's wrong with the car. It's a mystery. You got to figure it out. You got to try to find. You go into the forums. You search this. You search that. You got a problem with the water heater. You're like trying to figure it out. You got It's a mystery to you. People love mysteries. They love mystery novels. They love mystery uh, um, uh, uh, movies and TV shows and things like that. I mean, those are some of the most popular things. Why? Because mankind has this insatiable desire to search things out. Why do you think God created us that way? That we would search out for him. That we would look and seek after him. But here he is creating a mystery and he's showing a mystery and he's saying, here's a mystery for you. God was manifest in the flesh. Why would God do that? Why didn't God just, you know, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? He goes, really? Zot. Here goes the earth. Let's start again. Why didn't you just go, whatever? You know, like a teenager, young adult. Walk away, ignore the problem. Why didn't you just do that? Why, why would he sit there and say, you know, I love this creation so much. His brother Aaron was talking about that, that hates me. That I'd be willing to die for it. That I'm willing to humble myself. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. The mystery of godliness, God being manifest in the flesh. You realize how low the flesh is? Just think about your comparison into what the universe looks like. You're not even a speck. 
you're so insignificant into the size of the universe that it puzzles mankind that they sit there and they go, well, there must be something else or someone else out there. There must be another civilization on another planet. And of course, they're far more advanced than us. What if they're not? You ever think about that? Let me get you in the mind of Ken for just a little bit of a moment, which is a scary place to be. Trust me, I've been there. Um, you go there and you think about this for a second. Let's say man is finally descend, you know, decides, okay, we're going to put people on the Mars. They go to Mars and they finally, you know, they, they start surveying and they come across this little cave and there's a door. They knock on the door. They open it up and there's a civilization there. And the civilization, they, they still haven't even figured out how to invent fire. They're freezing themselves. And here we are, and we show up, and we, we, we demonstrate, and we'll look, a rocket ship. And they're all like, <gasps> what is this? Well, look, <laughs> we, we could sit there and speculate all day long, but, but, but let's just, just understand the fact. God wrote and preserved a book for mankind here on earth. His creation here on earth. The rest of everything else just dis, just displays his glory, his handiwork, and everything else that he is about. Here's God who is sinless. Have you ever sat and speculated and thought about what it's going to be like in eternity? No thought of sin. Man, that's hard to do in five minutes. You get on I-5. Drive through Portland. Sin shows up. Go to work. Sin shows up, doesn't it? You're sitting there looking at the guy and you're going, man, I want to punch you in the face. And you know that's not the right thing to do. You know exactly that, 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 that that's the one thing that God says, you know, hey, look, you know, you, you've got a temper problem. You shouldn't go around you know, wanting to, to punch people in their face because it's sin, right? So, so let's think about this for a minute. No sin. None. We can't even begin to fathom it, can we? Our, our, our minds at some point in time just kind of short out. Let's think about the, the, the holiness and the glory of God. Moses saw a little glimpse of him. And again, he comes off the mountain and he's shining like a radioactive rod out of a nuclear plant. And, 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 and what happens? You got to see just a little bit. But the glory of God being so powerful, 
that flesh can't even stand in its presence. Now, again, I want you to think about this. When it comes to God and who he is, he has never been born and he will never die. At some point in time, your brain cannot compute that. What did you do beforehand? What's he going to do afterwards? People paint God in this picture like somehow, some way he needed us. God's perfect. He doesn't need anything. And again, we go through this process of trying to think about who God is. And I want you to think about how he would have to humble himself. A while back, they made a bunch of shows about uh, CEOs, uh, you know, donning disguises and going into the trenches with the workers, right? It was an undercover boss or something like that is what it was called. And they would go and... And, and then eventually they'd reveal themselves and so on and so forth. And they'd go in this disguise and what did they have to do? They had to humble themselves. Some of the supervisors were sitting there going, who is this guy? I would fire him in a minute. This guy can't even do the simplest job. This guy doesn't deserve to be part of this company. And he's the one that's running it. But you think about all of that for a minute. Think about how how Jesus Christ, God himself, humbled himself to be made in the flesh. That's a mystery. That's a mystery. I was talking to my wife about, you know, handshakes. And, uh, you know, I... I've been in some churches where, you know, handshaking comes around and, 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 and what happens? It's a time for guys to show exactly how strong they are. Right? And then grip that and then, you know, and the other guy grips back. And then, of course, they've got to do it to the women, too. Grip, crush the hand. I'm the dominant one, right? I'm superior. I'm the strong one. And we can't even humble ourselves in a handshake, a fellowship, where we have to say, hey, I'm glad to see you, and we extend the hand out, and we shake, and and something of that nature, and and, and somebody's got to make it a competition. Oh, good, I dropped you to your knees, and you're crying. Yes. I love you, brother. We can't even do that. We can't even humble ourselves even being humble. As I've said before, and I heard it from somewhere else, so I didn't invent it, but I'm so humble, I'm proud of it. You know, that type of stuff. The Pharisee. Oh, I fast. I tithe. I'm such a glorious, godly person. Unlike that sinner. And here's here 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 he just said over in Romans, 
God made himself in the likeness of sinful flesh for us. He humbled himself for us. God doesn't have to eat. God doesn't have to drink. On the cross, Jesus Christ said, I thirst. And I totally understand the spiritual context of what he was talking about there. But at the same time, his physical body did thirst. Jesus did get hungry. He got tired. He slept in a boat. One of the greatest things that everybody should ever take away from that passage is Jesus napped. Why? Because he had rest with God. Because he was God. He is God. He is the rest. He is the Sabbath. We, we, we look at all of this and we realize that God had humbled himself. And here's Paul telling Timothy, man, that's a great mystery. I can't imagine why God would do that for somebody like me. He says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up in the glory. He had a, he had a ministry. He had a ministry. All these people running around talking about what a successful ministry is. Oh, if you're running a church of 2,000 people, you got a successful ministry, right? How, how, how big was the church? around the time that Jesus was there, his church. In the garden, when he was betrayed, how big was it? Yeah, and then when they came to get him, how big was it? Yeah, we go over to the book of Mark and we find some guy running around you know, naked and it's like, wait, who was that? Why is that guy running around like that? What's that all about? That was his church? How about at the cross? How about at the trial? Three, three and a half years? And that's it. And people would say, well, that didn't seem successful. But it wasn't about that. The success was found in the power of his resurrection. He rose from the dead. Because he was God. He wasn't raised by anyone else. He wasn't raised by an Elijah. He wasn't raised by an Elisha. He wasn't raised by a Peter. And he wasn't raised by a Paul. He did it himself. That's a mystery. Because it's God. We're never going to get to that point of where we fully understand God in this flesh. How can we do that? And, 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 and turn to another, <coughs> excuse me, turn to another passage. Go back over to the book of First John. Take a look at some of the similar passages that he begins to talk about. And again, this really reinforces the the the, the concept of 
of what this book of 1 John is about. We're kind of jumping ahead here a little bit, but in 1 John chapter 4, he says in verse 1, 1 John 4 verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. you got to try the spirits. That requires some knowledge, doesn't it? Whether they are of God. There's people running around today trying to messing with every other spirit. There's people trying to necromance their long lost loved ones, praying to them, and 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 if you will, in some cases, receiving answers. That's not of God. What did he tell the nation of Israel to do? Stay away from that. Stay away from that. Your loved one isn't going to answer you. You can pray to your loved one all day long. That's not who you're supposed to pray to. You pray to God. You pray to anything else. You're praying to an idol. And be careful. Sometimes they answer. And it will lead you astray. I've seen it over and over and over again. But here, we find he says you're supposed to try it. But I love this. John says, okay, I just threw that out there. Now I'm going to give you the answer. He says in verse 2, hereby know ye the Spirit of God. So how are we going to know that they're of God? This is how we know this of the Spirit of God. Now, again, this is important because we're talking about the Holy Spirit. How do we know when it's the Holy Spirit speaking to us and not ourselves? Can we discern the difference? Can we discern the difference between our spirit and God's spirit? Can we discern the difference between, say, the spirit of a a brother and sister in Christ that may mean well, but isn't given godly advice or counsel? It says, hereby we know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, Wherever you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. That's John writing a few thousand years ago. You think the spirit of the Antichrist is still is still around today? Think maybe it's increased a little bit. I think it's just more prevalent because it's talked about more. We have more communication devices. We have more access to it. I mean, think about it. If something happened in Iowa, it took a few days to get to us back in the day. And we're like, oh, did you hear about that? About a week ago, this happened in Iowa. This happened on the East Coast. Wasn't an immediate thing. I mean, you had to get a telegraph. 
sit there and tap it out. And then it had to be printed. And then it had to, you know, you had to go buy the newspaper. And then somebody had to tell you. And if you lived out in the farm in the middle of nowhere, we really didn't care what happened because you're just trying to grow corn. Guess what? Somebody says, oh, did you hear about that over there? And you're like, no. And the spirit of the Antichrist is very prevalent today. Why? Because people want to reject Christ. And, and this is where, if you will, the rubber meets the road in this specific, and I don't want to get too much into this because we're going to get into it a little bit more later, but I, I just want to, if you will, give a little taste of what we're talking about here. You know, let's think about what he's talking about. Jesus Christ in the flesh. The Word being made flesh. If somebody rejects biblical principles and somebody who rejects the word of God as counsel, that's the spirit of Antichrist. They're they're rejecting who God and who Jesus is. They're rejecting our God, Jesus Christ. They're rejecting what he has done for us. They're rejecting the fact that God has given us a word which is truth that we can believe in and that we can actually use in our day-to-day life to guide us and to direct us as he said he would, as he promised he would. And again, this is one of the reasons why pastors and evangelists and youth ministers and everyone else that, that, that loves God emphasizes the importance of the Bible and reading it and studying it and memorizing it and, and, and if you will, telling others about it. The Word of God is so important. And we live in the United States of America where the Word of God is not important. It's not. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll be transparent. I have a hard time, and I like to do the antique shopping. I like to look around. I like to look at old things and, and see things, and sometimes they're really cool. That flag that we have in the back, the 48 stars. Yes, we don't recognize New York and California as real states. <laughs> but, no, you know, obviously that's an old flag. It's an internment flag. That flag was over somebody's coffin. Found it watered up in an antique store for 35 bucks. I'm like, hmm. I bought it, put it up here. It's really bad when I go and they've got books. It's really hard. I'll walk past and I'll have to refrain. But if something catches my eye and I catch it out of the corner of my eye, one time it was an antique store and I saw this little um, book and all I could see, and it was, it was just, it was really hard to read. Because it was so, so worn on the front. But it, it was pretty clear it was a hymnal. 
I'm like, oh man. And it was worn. You know what that means? Somebody used it. Some old saint had that hymn book and just sang and sang and sang and sang. Yeah, it's on my bookshelf. You see an old Bible, man, you got a refrain. Dennis Himes, he, he found a Bible in a bin. You know that that Goodwill store that's just got the bins of stuff that you got to root around in, and he found in there it was like you know all these books were a buck. He found a Bible in there, a old Bible. Bible's about close to a hundred years old. It was actually in miraculously good condition. Problem was, it was a printing error Bible because it's missing like part of Second Chronicles. Some important stuff back there. But 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 it's cool. It's this old Cambridge Bible, a little compact one. It's nice to look at. He bought it for me because he knew I'd love it. Those are physical things. I get it. But how much do we really love the Word of God that we're willing to to re, to, to, to really get into it? And to realize the importance of it and what it means to us. That's the life. That's life that's worth living for. And here he is, he's saying, look, if somebody's gonna just disregard the whole fact that Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh, there's a problem. Somebody disregards the word of God, there's a problem. That should be a red flag. You should be careful about receiving any advice from anybody that believes that way. But people will run to them. They'll run to a psychologist that rejects God and who he is in Jesus Christ. They'll, they'll run to a psychiatrist who will prescribe them a drug. They'll run to anyone else other than the Word of God to get the answer. Why? Because they don't want to confront the fact that they need to change. They need to make a difference in their lives with the Word of God. And when I mean make a difference, I'm talking about making a change. Go back over there to that, that, that passage and, and we see where he says, for the word, uh, for the life was, uh, in, first uh, John chapter one, verse two, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and we bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. He's saying we saw it. Now, now I want to talk about this life just for a brief moment. I want you to turn to second, uh, Corinthians chapter five. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this morning Aaron was like, you know, flirting around with some of the stuff that I was going to do tonight. And I'm just like, oh man, you know, another pastor getting close, Mm, you know. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse uh, 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 14, he says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because thus we judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, 
that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Now here's John talking about this life, and you know what he's getting at? This life is different than the life that we often live for ourselves. And we do, we live for ourselves. Man, we are a bunch of selfish five-year-old children, aren't we? Let's just, I mean, let's just get all repentant right now and realize we, we, we are, we are demanding little five-year-olds. We live for ourselves. It's us first, someone else later. You get a bunch of kids lined up together. What's the, to, to, to give them cupcakes? What, what happens? They run to be the first in line. You might have a, one kid that might be going like, oh, no, 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 please go before me. And the other one's like, oh, yes, absolutely. Like a little gentleman. Uh, I'll, I'll just say this. People aren't taught to be ladies and gentlemen anymore. They're taught to, the, to, to just believe themselves, follow their own heart, do what they want to do, believe their own truth, and and, and honestly... Forget about everybody else. That's what's taught today. That's the mentality of today. Well, how do I know that? Go to one of the merges in the roundabouts over here. It's like a little drag race. Isn't it? The guy on the outside, he sees, oh, you're going to get there. No, I'm going to get there first. He guns it. And if you don't slow down, you're going to have a wreck. There you go. Selfish people. And you know what this passage is talking about? He's talking about a life that Jesus Christ manifested. And you know what that life that was manifested? One that wasn't selfish about him. Aren't you glad he did the will of the Father? Aren't you glad that he came and died on that cross for your sins? Aren't you glad that he rose again? That was a life that he humbled himself for his creation. It's a great mystery. Go back over there to First John, and what do we find here? We find that this is what he wants. This is what he begins talking about, and he, he begins to show very clearly that this is something that begins to bond believers. And this becomes the theme throughout the, uh, throughout the book. What do we wind up finding? We find here he starts talking about loving other people. Oh, dear. That's a hard thing for people to do nowadays. But look at what he says. I want you to see this, and we're going to just briefly touch on this. But here he he talks about in verse 3, and he says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. He says, okay, we've seen all this. We see the way that Jesus Christ lived this life. We see what he set for examples. And, and, And we're going to show this. We're going to declare this to you. We're going to write it to you for a reason that ye may also have fellowship with us. 
people will talk about fellowship all the time. Baptists will talk about fellowship, and they'll talk about it in such a way of, well, you know, we got to get around food, right? Because fellowship isn't fellowship unless food is involved. And I will say amen to that. What food are we talking about? Are we talking about pizza rolls? Are we talking about juicy hamburgers? Are we talking about perfectly cooked baby back ribs with barbecue sauce that just fall off the bone? You're like, just stop. <clears throat> what are we talking about? Are we talking about the Word of God? I mean, that's our food on a daily basis. I tell you, some Christians, they're great at fasting. They're really great at fasting on the Word of God. Because they'll get it Sunday, and as long as they just get a little bit of it on Sunday, they're good for the whole rest of the week. Try that with food. Guess what happens by noon Monday? You eat on Sunday. You get a nice big meal on Sunday. Have good Sunday dinner. You slip into a food coma. You wake up the next morning. And you're like, okay, I can, I can get through without having breakfast. Noon comes around. And your stomach begins to ask the question, why are you punishing me? What did I do to you? By the time 5 o'clock rolls around, the stomach has decided to gnaw on your spine because it's got nothing better to do. Let's say we make it through the first day. Tuesday rolls around. Stomach wakes up and goes, oh, goody. I'm waiting for that Pop-Tart. You're like, no, but I'm going to deny you a Pop-Tart today. We're not going to eat until next Sunday. At some point in time, your stomach's going to say, I'm going to exit the body. And I'm going to find somebody else that's willing to feed me. I'm gone. I'm out of here. I didn't sign up for this. Our bodies rebel, right? We come around and we, we, we realize the importance of the Word of God. And we realize that we need to be fed on a day-to-day basis, multiple times a day from the Word of God. For our spiritual life. When we come together, what binds us and what really makes fellowship fellowship is the Word of God. And if the Word of God isn't present, it's not fellowship that pleases God. Well, you can fellowship, but the question is always this. And what I'm doing, does it please God? And if it's fellowshipping around anything else that is not of God, we have to ask the question, is that really what he wants us to do? And it begins to form the core of what he's trying to get the recipients of this letter to start thinking about. How do I look at the body of Christ? How do I look at church members? How do I look at my brother and sister in Christ? 
Is it a way that I look at them with love? Or do I look at it through a selfish set of glasses? How do I see each and every believer? How do I perceive them? How do I demonstrate the love of God towards them? And this becomes the core of the book. And he starts setting up in the very beginning. These first few verses become very critical to the doctrines that he's about ready to introduce. Because he says in verse 4, and I'm just going to briefly summarize this, and I know I'm running out of time. It's been a while since I've been up here, so give me some slack. <laughs> in verse 4 it says, These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Was he writing for his own purpose? John was writing that somebody else might have joy and actually be joyful. And look, he actually like had to write it. He didn't go up to the AI and ask it to write it. He didn't sit down and type it. He had to handwrite it. It had to be delivered. And he said, I want you, I want to do this because I want you to have joy. And I don't want you to just have a little bit of joy. I want you to be so full of joy that it's coming out of your nose. I want you to be so excited about the things of God and who God is and, and, and the fact that he came and was manifest in the flesh for you to die for you, to rise, rise again. That you can't help but contain. You can't contain that. And this is why he writes. One of the purposes of it. The word write or wrote shows up in about it's different variations in this book about ten times. There's an importance behind it. There's an importance by why God wrote this unto you. And we personalize this. God had John write this to someone else back in the past so that future you would be able to read it one day and realize that your joy can be full too if you start living the way that God wants you to. And it focuses on the first part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Not a coincidence. Not a coincidence. People get a hold of love, they get a hold of joy. It's a process. It's a process. And you'll live a joyless life without the love of God. But we'll get into that more next week, Lord willing. So let's go ahead and end with a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again for an opportunity to just study this word and study what you have for us. And Lord, 
I pray that we would understand the importance of Scripture, the importance of what you've done for us. That, Lord, we would think about it and we would reflect on it daily. That, Lord, we would think about what you've done and given to us and the forgiveness that we have daily, if not hourly. That, Lord, we would have that mindset that just really focuses on how you have loved us and demonstrated that love. That you would come and humble yourself in the form of this flesh so that, Lord, we would have that eternal life that is spoken about in your word. Thank you again, Lord, for those that are here tonight. Pray that you take us home safely, that we would just think about the things that are said today, that it wouldn't just be something that, oh, hey, I went to church, but, Lord, it would be something that we think about in our life throughout this week as we read our Bibles, as we try to please you, as we follow you after your will. I thank you again, Lord, for all that you've done for us. And this I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.